Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Pursuit from Bourbon to Brand. However you found us, we're glad that you're here as we get a behind-the-scenes look at the Pursuit Spirits brand. I'm your host, Brian Bikey, and joining me, as always, we have Ryan and Kenny. We're and... alive and thriving. It's a great day to be alive in the bourbon business. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> optimism at its best right there. You must have had a really good few days in Chattanooga make you come back feeling that well. I did. Chattanooga is a really good city. I love that place and got to hang out with the Chattanooga whiskey folks. Tim was gracious enough to show us around their great facility. It makes me kind of jealous. I'm like, Kenny, maybe we should get our own, you know, big still and stuff. But <laughs> you that's what you think. I need to make sure you keep your eyes on the prize, my friend. No, I know. That's I'm very easily distracted. That's for sure. So what do you what do you call what do you think is defining as a big still? What's your definition of a big still? Well, I mean, it was I don't know. It did ten barrels a day. I was like, that's pretty big for me. <laughs> You went through moonshine. What kind of still do you need to do 10 barrels a day? What kind of well, how big of a column or high? That one was probably like 40 foot column mm. with about 20 plates and, and then Pretty a doubler. Big. Yeah. The whole facility cost $6 million in 20, 2016, if you're wondering. So probably 10 million today's terms. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that, that I don't have between my couch cushions. So I guess we need to probably table that yeah. one for another day. But I think they can make. 1400 barrels a day i mean not a day sorry a year and that's roughly about what we're laying down so yeah so you need about 10 million dollars so i guess i'm perfectly content with our fine partner distillers because they do such a fantastic job and we do a great job of blending their fantastic distillate (laughs) i'm glad i'm glad you saw my point of the argument there because oh that scared the loving jesus out of me for a minute it looked fun it looked shiny there you go it was, it was, it's it draws people in because they see a big piece of copper and they're like "Ooh, there's stuff going on here we have to we have to convey the story of what happens without all that magic like there's there's a lot of other things that happen that's true i'm sure people don't want to hear my about my chattanooga story so We'll get back to our host, Brian, to lead us into tonight's topic. Yay. I was actually curious how those Chattanooga Congeners were tasting. <laughs> the the wild thing like a about minor league baseball or hockey team. <laughs> when they got the, the funny mascot or whatever, the Chattanooga right. Congeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Chattanooga would probably drive Kenny crazy because there's like, I think they said they've done a, over a hundred different grain mash bill recipes oh my like God. that they've ran through their stills and so they have like you know their flagship which is the 91 111 but everything else is kind of like whatever grant decides he you know feels like doing then you know it's kind of cool i mean but kind of for us you know it's it's totally different from what we're doing so they they got a lot of different things going a lot of cool stuff it's consistency and no consistency at once (laughs) that's right yeah the consistent thing is it all goes through the Solera tank thing, I think. So, <laughs> there you go. Grant's a really good distiller. I got to taste a lot of stuff. And, you know, even, you know, they do a lot of single malt stuff, which I'm typically not a fan of, but I, I did like a few of their expressions in the single malt realm. And you didn't just travel to Tennessee recently, though. You also spent some time, you, you're the traveler this year. You spent some time in Texas. Yeah, that's true. Two weeks ago, I was in Waxahachie. I think that's how you said. I don't know. Waxa, Waxa, Waxahachie. Hanging out with Matt Pittman from Meat Church. I always looked at it and said Waikiki, Texas, but that was <laughs> just a guest. <laughs> Get my lay, my lay on. Yeah. Is that what they are? Um, you made out of rib bones. 
Yeah, so I guess by the time this, I don't know when this will air, but March 1st will be the video that Matt and I recorded. We did a bourbon and barbecue pairing. So he made four different things. I, po- I paired four different bourbons, and we also made some cocktails. Made a delicious bourbon mojito and a tasty old-fashioned using United Bourbon and United Rye. And then I won't spoil the episode. You can watch it on YouTube on Meat Church's channel, but... uh. He's he's in this infancy stage of getting his bourbon journey. You know, obviously he's got the smoking and the meat down, the the barbecue. <laughs> there's no there's no issues there. Yeah, he's he, no issues there. But he's in the infancy of his bourbon journey, so it's exciting again to teach someone. You know, who's who's eager to learn about this hobby and this industry and whatnot. So yeah, it was a lot of fun, and I think it was a great video. Most of his videos are usually like 20 minutes. I think this one was going to be like around 30 to 40. So I'll be interested to see how much they cut out of me out, because I felt like I was blabbing a lot the entire time. But hey, they did have me on to talk about bourbon. So, you know. How did that come about, if you don't if you don't mind kind of getting into that backstory? Yeah, so it's kind of crazy, um, you know, just another divine intervention almost. But any anyway, Brian Lowe from... Uh, Dallas Bourbon Club, who's become a really good friend of mine and has really helped us in Texas and, you know, just in the bourbon scene in general. Matt's uh, obviously from Waxahachie, which is about an hour south of Dallas, and they had a mutual friend. Matt came and to a Dallas Bourbon Club event and helped cook for it or something, and then they kind of became friends. And then when Brian met Matt, he's like, dude, you're just like my buddy Ryan. I feel like you are the same people just you're into bar- barbecue, he's into bourbon. <laughs> and so like, he's like, I need to hook you all up. So he set a phone call up and we hit it off. You know, we talked for like an hour and then I sent him some bottles of our stuff. And he was like, man, I really love your product. He's like, I have this cool idea. I want to pair some bourbon and barbecue. I think you'd be great for it. So why don't you come down? We'll do that. We'll shoot some video and uh, we'll do some things with your product. He's like, I got some ideas to help you all out because he's got a really large platform there on YouTube. So he's been super generous and, you know, awesome to work with. And we had a ton of fun and we're, you know, we're keep texting each other back and forth. He's like going hunting bourbon and stuff and like shoot me bottles of like, will it, or (laughs) this bottle. He's like, should I get this? And that, and it's, it's funny. Like he's like in that embassy stage. It's fun. What all did you uh, bring down there or, or send him? What all has he tried from, from the lineup and what's his favorite been so far? He really likes the bourbon but uh, really loves the rye and an old-fashioned. He's like, I like the rye neat, but he's like, this makes the best old-fashioned. He's like, old-fashioned's got me into bourbon, but he's like, this rye really makes the best old-fashioned. That's what his feedback's been for. And he likes the oak collection, too. He was with TX Whiskey, which was uh, a local brand there in Fort Worth who's owned by Pernod Ricard, which they do some interesting things. They have, like, single malt stuff, but also a bourbon, but it's kind of different because it's tech texas bourbon to me is like I, I can, i'm trying to wrap my head around it it doesn't you know it's all kind of different than kentucky bourbon but anyways that's what he liked well fresh off some travel and some tastings i wanted to dive into the topic something that we kind of talked about possibly off air a uh, month or so back which is expanding the portfolio and i wanted to talk about this because aside from the series bottles, which are the single barrels that we've historically done and kind of have a few allotments for the 2023 year. The Oak Collection was kind of the first expansion outside of the Black Label Bourbon and Rye that we've seen kind of some skews growing 
with the brand. And I wanted to kind of open this topic up and just try and see for pursuit specifically, as well as just brands in general, you know, some of the things that we talked about as maybe growing pains or struggles or perception in the market or any of those things in the 2022 kind of series of our recordings, I'm kind of curious if some of these things are going to be remedied on their own just by the portfolio expanding and being able to reach more consumers in different ways and whether we've seen that start to take place already with the Oak Collection release. So I'll leave it there and we'll kind of keep digging in as we go. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about from a, a business process perspective. So the the idea of having the, the more SKUs, it's always a good thing because right now we have a total of what you would call four general SKUs, which is really good to set up for private events, tastings, everything like that when you need to be able to show people more about your product because if you just have your one bourbon and one rye, well, that's going to go pretty quickly. So you want to be able to have something that shows a little bit of breadth and variance into it. Now, beyond that is when you start getting into, well, how far do you take these SKUs? And we, we know that we have our black label bourbon and rye as our flagship for United, and those SKUs are going to continue to say the same. They're not going to change. Uh, and we have our first two iterations of Oak Collection. And now this is kind of where it gets tricky. Because we have the the toasted American and French oak are the bourbon. We have the sherry and the rye. And now it's trying to figure out, well, what other things do we want to do? Do we want to continue to enhance that portfolio and grow more oak collection type products out there? And that will, again, create more skew sprawl, which, is, like I said, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have more of your product on the shelf. Uh, the, the bad thing actually comes from the back end of it. If you create something that requires a brand new blend, do you have the inventory to be able to support that for the next X amount of years? When you need to create another SKU, well, the processes that go into that, you have to go and register every single new SKU. Well, first you have to register the, you know, get your new UPC code from the GSN website. So you can have a, an actual UPC label, but now you have to go and submit that to every single state. You have to submit new item forms to every single distributor. And then you have to go and you have to convince them to actually go and carry the product and bring it and then go sell it in the market. And with that also usually it requires you to create more marketing material, go to market, promote it, everything like that. So just creating a new SKU isn't as easy as it seems just from a, a product development standpoint, it's everything that's kind of after that. It, it kind of goes into, the, like I said, the longevity of the product and what's it going to take to actually make people aware of the new product. And I don't want to say there's a life cycle to our, our current, but right now I think we're in a very good state of what we're doing with just awareness of the United brand and to continue to keep enhancing it or growing it bigger, adding more SKUs. I don't know if it's right at this time. I think there will be a, a time where we add in a few different things. I know people have dropped the idea saying, hey, I'd love to see a United barrel proof release. Well, I think we can probably accompany that one day, but we need to make sure that we take care of everything else that we currently have and we can satisfy the demand of our current products and existing markets and start doing more account penetration in our existing markets too because if we just keep going wide and thin it's really not going to help anything out so what we need to do is we need to focus more on 
making sure that we are working with our best accounts in the current states that we're at, making sure that they're happy. We see product pull through because even if you don't see product pull through, I mean, I guess the easy thing to do is say, oh, I guess we'll just go create another SKU and then they have to put it now on the shelf. And now you just keep creating other things right next to each other, even though nothing's selling, but you want to make sure that you have that constant pull through and people are buying the bottles. And if you do that and you see that happening, well, maybe then you can start some experimentation. And there's a lot of cool things we can do the experimentation side too. I think that leaves us uh, some wiggle room for future opportunity where we will have our, our brick and mortars locations uh, in the future where we can utilize that as a place to have a home for those experiments and not necessarily have to take it all out to distribution. So you have some stuff that's going to be a quote unquote gift shop only release. And I've talked too much. So I'm going to let Ryan chime in a little bit. 2022 was a definitely a year of figuring out how do we move forward with our products and brand identity and where, how do we want to fo- focus our attention? Cause you see it on the market. Like it seems like everybody has like 15 SKUs now, <laughs> you know, whereas we, with our flagship product, the black label. We really focused on that being really, really good and a solid offering. That was our goal with it. Was it to be a really good expression that a whiskey enthusiast could take home, can enjoy, you know, where uh, I was thinking about this for, you know, a lot of brands, their flagship is just kind of like a entry level kind of 80 proof, cheap, 80 proof, very meh kind of, you know, it's very average product where we kind of flipped the script and we're like, no, we're going to make this actually like, really, really good, you know, out the gate. And then so to like add on that, we have to be just as good or if not better on that. So, you know, I've been thinking about this, you know, from a brand and just what other companies are doing too. We really wanted, you know, the the black label to be the focus. And we thought we saw the O collection as an opportunity too, like, cause obviously people are into finishing, you know, they're, it's a trend and we were reluctant, but it was like, maybe this is something we can do that we feel like we can add compliments to our black label just to give it a slight differentiation. And maybe somebody that's kind of been like, ah, I'm not going to take a chance on the black label. You know, maybe they would take a chance on that because it's that toasted or has those buzzwords toasted or sherry finished or whatnot. So maybe they would try that and be like, oh, well, that's really good. Let me try the the flagship against that. I think I was texting with both y'all the other night. It's like, because amidst of all this Amberana craziness, like I'm just like looking at brands like Michter's and I'm like, I really love how Michter's doesn't let the market dictate what they're going to do. They just do what they're going to do and they put out really good products and they don't do single barrel picks. You know, they're the only ones releasing single barrels. You know, it's like kind of refreshing, whereas everyone else has just been like, how can we appease everyone? And I don't know if that gets you anywhere. It's just like you're, I don't know. It just feels like you're constantly chasing something. And I don't know that I like that. And I feel like we're in a really good place. And we. I feel comfortable with hanging on these four SKUs right now. Two, you know, with single barrels and all these one-offs and this and that, it's like, what does it do to your core products? You know, I think like New Riff. I love New Riff, but I got it on single barrels. And then so it's like, I'm not, and I have a ton of single barrels and there's a ton of single barrels out there in the market. I'm never going to buy the bottled and bond flagship new riff because why would I, I just want a single barrel pick of it. Now I might try the, you know, the, that rye you gave me, Brian, the one off the, the six was, year malted rye. But I feel like, I don't know. I feel like they kind of maybe 
put too much emphasis on the single barrel picks at first. And then now it's like, okay, do people, will people ever go to get just the flagship bald and bond? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't know what the right answer is, but I look at, you know, two different case studies of like new riff or Mictors, you know, and like, what do you want to be? And I kind of like, I think that we we can be good enough that we can be someone like a Mictors that we can say this is what we think is what's best, not what the market thinks best. But maybe that's too arrogant. I really like that analogy because you're right. The the thing that it's it's stressful and it's tough, and I think that's the thing that most people don't know about is, and that's why we don't do many pursuit series anymore, which was our single barrel cash strength uncut releases. It's a pain in the ass. I mean, it truly is. It's not fun to be able to do because you spend a lot of time getting labels ready and making sure you get all the logistics correct to be able to move 180 bottles and then they're gone and then that's it. And then, yeah, it's a it's an easy, quick credit card swipe because it's a big sale at once. Beyond that, there's a lot of logistics that go into it. And to do that 10 times over, I mean, I'll, I know my hair is already going gray, but I'm going to lose it at that rate if we were just to do single barrels all the time. I really do admire the Michter's approach in a lot of this. They're the only ones that come out with a 10-year product and everybody's clamoring for it. Even though you've got Russell's and a bunch of other stuff that's 10 years and it's just kind of, it's out there. But they do a great job on what they've been able to create in regards of market awareness and FOMO and everything like that, that people want to gravitate and find that as well. The other thing that I, I really have to think about too, as you had mentioned about the the entry level offering. I remember when we first started this and and somebody said, if you want to be a general everyday consumer type of bottle, you need to be sub 40. Sub $40 is where you have to be. And that's true. I guess you got to be 90 proof and below to be able to hit that price point, especially at some of the barrel amounts that we're doing and stuff like that. And even then our, our margins would be razor thin until new make comes out. But it's a, it's tough to kind of think about only because, and, and I've thought about this too, it's trying to figure out, because we, we have people try our product all the time when we're doing tastings at different liquor stores and they'll try it and they'll go, oh, oh. 108. I wasn't expecting that. Or we'll go, well, it doesn't drink like 108. It drinks like 98. And that basically takes a lot of people by surprise because yes, a lot of people are expecting some sort of, you know, 90 proof, uh, a Woodford reserve, if you will. That's what people are probably expecting something around that, that proof level. It's quite all right to do that, but we just haven't gotten there. And I don't know what the right answer is either. Do we try to stay true to ourselves and our type of community and customer where we want to make sure that we're putting out products that really pack a punch, not really pack a punch, but deliver a lot of bold, good flavors versus something to say, well, we can stretch this a lot further. It's good whiskey. We can stretch a lot further and we can reach the common consumer at a sub $40 price point. Check the box. And I don't know if we can come out with a, I mean, I know we could probably come out with a whiskey that's good. I just don't know if that's the right move, because if we did that, well, now we have to put all of our marketing thought and mindset into whatever this new product is, and maybe it's not United. And I don't know if that's the right answer either. No, Kenny, it's not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it would ha it would have to have a name, uh, and maybe like uh, I don't know, United Low Proof or something like that. United Clear. I feel like for us, for our brand and where we want to go with it, you know, even at the scale we'll be at, we'll still be a very very niche brand and me personally i don't think we need to try to appeal to the masses because it's when you do get those 
ideal customers that come and try it and they're like, oh, it's only 108 proof. It drinks a lot lower than that, you know, and then they're like, there's so much flavor and you can see it, they, it, they get it. And, you know, and that's like the customers we're trying to find. And then you're like, it's, I don't think we have to appeal to everyone. We have this niche of the market that we can uh, appeal to and we just got 10,000 true fans. Exactly. Well, I guess 250,000 eventually. We need 250,000 <laughs> fans. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> well, if we have four SKUs, then we only need uh, whatever 250 <laughs> divided by four is. <laughs> 75. Yes. Is that so, right? Maybe. I don't know. I'm not good at math. I'm just guessing on that one. Now I've got to check. 62.5. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, gosh, am I, I'm going to feel like an idiot. Yeah, there you go. 62 and a half. It takes me in two particular thoughts. One kind of gets back to the expansion of your portfolio as it is. I'll get there in just a second. I want to jump back to, to what we were hitting on. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes I, I wonder, I don't know if there's enough data out there for, you know, the trend of, of finished and toasted products to know, I hear of bourbon drinkers going and, and trying finished products as they're out. And I don't know if that's because it's chasing the new. I don't know if it's because it's a break from just the standard bourbon flavors. But I don't hear a lot of people say, oh, I got my start trying finished whiskey and I started <laughs> drinking straight. You know what I mean? The way we talk about this makes me think about coffee in the way that we talk about people having a heavily flavored latte or something like that, and then slowly maybe going into a cappuccino, slowly working themselves up to black coffee without cream and sugar. You know, that's that's kind of the progression or the direction that that we in, in specialty coffee would like to see someone take to try and get to the natural flavors of that. But Again, I don't I just wonder if there's not enough time that's been out there because while we probably will still continue to expand the oak collection, you know, I still don't feel like I hear that story all that much. Oh, I I was a heavy wine drinker and I got caught on cab saw finished bourbon and rise and all of a sudden I realized, oh, there's a greater journey out there for me just drinking straight rye whiskey now. Yeah. Maybe time will tell that story more. But you're right. I think that without hearing those stories right now, it is just shuffling people on a shelf to something else. And that could be different reasons. It could be to keep things fresh. It could be because they need to add some sort of layer onto the flavor until it reaches where they really hope their 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 flagship product could taste. You know, any number of things. But I anyway. think that's what it is. A lot of us got into this on really good high-age whiskey. You know, 10 to 12-year-old bourbon has a ton of flavor. Four to six-year-old typically doesn't. So one way you can do that is you can finish it and add a layer of flavor. And so it gives pe whiskey geeks and people who want to try or want to just drink good bourbon, it's hard to get that age stuff. So the finishes kind of, it fills a need, I guess, right now, because there's not a ton of aged bourbon with a ton of flavor. So you can impart flavor by doing these different toastings and different finishes and whatnot. And that's just a theory or hypothesis of mine, but you might have some validity there, but I don't know. You think that people, I don't know if people get their start drinking 10 to 12 year old. I mean, I, I was drinking Kentucky Tavern. That's, that's how I got into it. I guarantee you that wasn't 10 to 12 year old whiskey. Well, I mean, when you first start like drinking it on the rocks or on not what you're mixing it with, but. Well, I mean, even though I was drinking it on the rocks and, and, and doing that, it was like four rows of small batch. And even that's what, probably six to eight year, if I had to guess. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think you, I think there's, for a whiskey geek, yeah, we cut our teeth and really get into it in that, that 10 year plus mark. But for the most, most people that are out there, and I think this has always been one of the misnomers that I really hope that we can break across one of these days is that most whiskey out there that's on the shelf is already four to six years old. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that when we go to a tasting, somebody asks me, they go, well, how old's the whiskey in your blend? I go, why does it matter? Or I'll say, what do you drink? And they'll say, I like Old Forester. I go, well, you know, it's a four-year-old product. Well, uh, okay. Well, I like Blanton's. Okay. That's a six-year-old product. So people are going to go and be like, I only drink eight years and older. Well, that's, that's really not true. Most of the stuff on the shelves is four to six years old. There's a ton of people out there that are out there that are going to get their entry into whiskey just from standard on-the-shelf offerings. Now, we are not what you would call a standard on-the-shelf offering because most people that you're going to try ours for the first time, yeah, you're probably going to be blown away by 108 proof. So is there a reason why people come out with a 93 or 90 or 86 proof? Yeah, that's probably it because that's what most people can go and gravitate towards. Those are the $25 to $35 bottles and that's where you need to be to hit mass market consumption. And I, we're not playing in that realm. And I don't know if like the idea is to get there one of these days, maybe, because we might have to have something that fills that gap, just because not everybody's a whiskey geek that's going to come and try our stuff. And so we've got to have something that allows people to to kind of experience that. Shit. Remember when we did our, our last barrel pick at Old Forester? And we, they gave us the flagship at first, and then you had all your barrel proof offerings and we tasted the flagship. We're like, Oh, you know, it's actually pretty good. We haven't had this in a while. And then we taste the barrel proof. And then you go back to the flagship. You're like, this is terrible. It tastes like water. <laughs> like we can't even get any flavor out of this thing. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you have this stage of this evolution of people that need to get into the bourbon. And I think that's something that we might have to seriously consider is, is what does our 93 proof offering look like or our 86 proof or I don't know. We'll find, put some numbers on a wall, throw some darts and figure out which number hasn't been taken yet that we can hang our hat on like 108. 88. No, 88. Damn, why not? Whatever you said made me think of this, and it, it was it's not related at all, but it would be a really interesting case study. So uh, Matt Porter, who is does ADHD whiskey on YouTube, you know, he was a couple years back when Barstown Bourbon Company did the first world's top whiskey taster. You know, he's the guy who won that, and now every year he does uh, a Matt Madness thing where he sends out samples to people on the, the bourbon tube verse and it's a little competition and he's been running these prelim events the last couple of weeks with some channels of who's going to be on this year and for he'll send out flights for them he'll ask them questions about age is it a bourbon or rye are any of them finished reveal the questions at the end in one of the rounds that i saw he sent all the people the same knob creek single barrel they tasted the same thing from three different sample jars. They they would do things like, what is, is A, a bourbon or rye? Bourbon. Is B, a bourbon or rye? Rye. Is C, a bourbon or, or rye? Bourbon. <laughs> but it was all the same and everyone thing. Had, yeah. And everyone had different answers, and they had different answers for the age, and they had different answers for... I, I, I don't remember the all the things. Same bottle, that's, that's great. And it was all samples, so three different samples to every person from the same... I, I need to go back and re-watch it just to see what they were what other things came about, but it's interesting because 
when we talk about you when you're hitting on the ages thing or the brands in general, it makes me wonder if sometimes everything that's thrown at us from the marketing side of things makes us think an expansion, a growth of portfolio, uh, a finish of some variety versus another blend done slightly differently or a slightly different proof. I think we it's very easy for us and for the industry to tell us that we want these things or that we need these things. When if you were to take Black Label Bourbon and sample, you know, 30 people in three different sample bottles, what would they experience? What would they guess <laughs> the proof is? The age? You know, what would they say about things like that? I think that's it just it was interesting to think about that in this uh, kind of context. Give us the addresses, bullshit them out. From a branding perspective, it's like you think of, you know, someone like Starlight or Nulu or Penelope. I mean, Penelope has some flagships, but they're kind of going, you know, on these finishes and stuff. And it's like, I'm just curious if all that just like, and too, if you're doing like brands with single barrels, that you're just doing single barrel picks. It's like, are you loyal to that brand or are you just drinking it because it's finished in XYZ and it's a one-time thing? And it's like, I don't know that you are. It's like, you're just checking a box that someone's looking for and it's not really a brand loyalty thing, but maybe it is. I don't know. It's like, you could do a lot of Starlight picks. I mean, how much of their Carl T have you bought, you know, their regular everyday offering? Well, I mean, I will say this, that even though they Starlight, Nulu, whomever, even though they do a lot of single barrel picks, the one thing that you do have and you do see is that when people latch on to them, they will have a shelf full of them. And so you'll see 10, 12, 14 different Starlight or Nulu's up there. And you go, well, that's 10 or 12 or 13 more bottles of United that we didn't sell. Right. So that's, I mean, there's something to be said about that too, because there is is that type of consumer. Now that is not the average consumer. Let's make sure we, we keep that in mind that is the that is the bourbon geek and the people that are are wanting to have the 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 special one-offs that you're only going to have one time it's never going to be there again and that's what ryan you had so profoundly made famous back in the day of saying how those are today's unicorns yet we don't want to provide that unicorn so we've got to figure out what do we do that makes it special and how do we go to the point where we are penetrating more of the market from a consumer standpoint instead of just trying to sit there and flood the shelves of the people that already know us are drinking it. Ryan, I think you had mentioned this, I believe it was off air, not on one of the past episodes, but you all were talking about the next batches we were we were testing for Oak Collection, but you had mentioned that people were actually, they were just asking for reorders of of Oak Collection. So if you remember from last year, when we talked about Oak Collection coming out, Kenny, you already mentioned earlier in this episode, you know, what finish the bourbon was in and the rye was in, and that was going to be uh, sort of a limited, smaller release. What was the reception like that? And, you know, what kind of drew that to have folks asking for, or at least have you all questioning whether we're going to kind of keep those as maybe the next two mainstays in the portfolio versus, again, kind of expanding that. The initial feedback's been really good, and it was so small that, you know, a lot of stores and will only get a case or two of it. It's like once it's gone, it's gone. And so it's like, okay, we know that people like the flavor profile. That's what the feedback they've gotten to us. And it was just our first time doing finished stuff. So I feel like we'll improve. To me, I feel like I think we kind of know that this has been well received. I think we continue to improve it on and expand it. That's my thought on it. I don't know what Kenny's thoughts are, are on it, but 
Yeah, and I think this is one thing that as soon as we've gone through here, the Oak Collection is by far, it's the right move to do. I'm really glad that we came out with the first two that we did because now that we have done a lot of different experiments, we found out that really there's nothing better in the rye than the sherry. (laughs) There's really not. We've done a lot of different experiments. I mean, there's some that are good, but I think the rye and the sherry one is it's just phenomenal and it's really gonna be hard to to beat that i also think the toasted american and the french oak combo is unique it's different not everybody else is doing that and i feel that what we're, with what we're doing is actually by separating them out finishing them and then blending them back together again i feel that we're doing something again that's more special it's more unique there's a, definitely a story there that that we can talk about because that is a very lengthy, arduous, and costly process, and but it shows in the whiskey, and I think that you really get that taste and that flavor profile out of it, too. Now, going forward, we'll, you know, it's all TBD to figure out, well, what other additions make it into it, but I think these two were very, very good first strong contenders of being mainstays that we can grow out of this just because it, it does check a lot of boxes of what's hot in the whiskey category, and they were phenomenally done. I think they were great. There's there's a lot of subtle flavors and nuances that don't overpower the blend. That's one of the things that we've always talked about is just making sure that it doesn't taste artificial. It doesn't taste like you dumped a gallon of port or sherry in there, but instead you still let the blend shine through. And this is going to be something that I think we're going to continue to hang our hat on as we go through more product and R&D and innovation to make sure that we continue to stay true to that. And it's not going to just be well, let's go ahead and chase the next cask finishing trend. Uh, but instead, let's go ahead and create something that we think is good. And and instead, let's let's try to, again, be more of that Michter's mindset. The Michter's toasted, you know, Woodford Double Oak, you know, along the wine finishings here, I think of like uh, Midnight Winter's Dram. You know, they come out once a year, and I'm pretty sure they're pretty consistent <laughs> with what they do in the finishes. It's like the same, like port, sherry, whatever. That I was looking at them the other day, and I was reading like, it looked like they've used the same barrels, you know, every, at least in the last three that I have are the same barrels that they have. And it's like, they, you know, they do this really well once or twice a year. And I think that's, I think that's the way to go for us. I think let's like really knock it out of the park, provide something that's really good, you know, and it's such on a small scale that it's going to be hard for someone, you know, to have like multiples of it. I mean, they could, but it's not one of those bottles that you're just going to like have five of them you know, in that year, we would love for you to, but I'm not sure that <laughs> yeah, you will. Say, Ryan, what are you trying to do? Kenny, I have a, this question's mainly for you and, and it could easily just be that I forgot the answer to it, but <laughs> were you mainly hoping that Oak Collection would be a shorter run than done and then kind of on to the next, the next one or kind of the next finishing? Or were you kind of, su- were you surprised with the way that it's, it seems to potentially be be something that you all can kind of anchor on as, you know, two additional SKUs in the portfolio. Yeah. When we first came out with this, I I had the mindset and the same mindset when we had the original United concept was, oh, well, we can swap out components. We can make things different. We'll put batch codes on there. People can chase them. They'll all be unique. They'll all be little unicorns. You can taste them side by side. And now as we start going through this, we realize how much a whiskey geek loves that. But the retailer, the distributor, and the modern, I just say the modern, just the average consumer 
probably doesn't need all that. And so we're we're trying we we thought we were trying to appease the whiskey geek and that probably wasn't the right way to be able to go about it just because of everything that we had already mentioned and the headaches and the processes that go along with it. Now going forward, I feel that we can we can have these mainstays, the skews that represent that always stay the same because even though you can go and you can buy all four of these skews but when you come and you visit us and you want to have a guided and interactive tasting experience, that ability to know more about the whiskey, about the journey, about everything that it took to be able to make that, I think will still come to life. And you'll be able to take that back home and still be able to share that with friends and family and, and have those memories next to it. So I feel more confident in our strategy now of making sure that we stick more consistent with our products and not try and sit there and chase the shiny red ball that's going across the street just because we see something new, we want to chase after it, but instead we need to keep focused and making sure that we are moving forward with the products that have proven to be good. I mean, shit, we're winning double golds in everything we're doing. So why go and change everything? And so I want to make sure that we we continue to to stay on that model and 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 make sure that we just build on top of it. Our flagship product is complicated enough. If we were just hit sitting here on one mash bill, that's all we had and we had to differentiate it somehow. I don't know. United is a complex concept and it was a complex thing that has taken a ton of effort for Kenny and I to to put forth out out there and so i think it's complex enough on its own that there's value in that on its own i think it stands up on its own that it can be special every time you go for it each and every time aside from the logistical nightmare that you've uh, explained that it is a little bit kenny and aside from the you know fighting for already tight shelf space on liquor store shelves does it seem like distributors give any more attention because you you have more of you know, seemingly available to markets? Does that help a brand stand out more or or get their attention or show that you're any more uh, deserving to have space than just being a, a one or two product portfolio? I think that depends. Yeah, you've got you've got some players that are out there that only have one to two SKUs and they are painted throughout different states across the U.S. And then, of course, you've got other brands that have five, six, seven, eight SKUs, and yes, and they're going to try and take up more shelf space. But it ultimately comes down to the retailer at the end of the day. The retailer is going to decide what they want to have on the shelf, and they only care about one thing. Will it sell? That's it. it they don't care what it tastes like. They don't care what the packaging looks like. Does it sell? And, and that is going to be the ultimate decision maker at the end of the day. So, I think that does anything make you look more attractive? No, I think it's just you have to have some sort of proven track record. For us, I I feel that Ron and I were very fortunate when we started this out that these conversations with distributors were very easy to have. Oh, who are you guys? No, we're just not some yahoos that started getting some barrels and putting it into a bottle. But instead, yeah, we've got an audience of 50,000 people that listen to us every single month through Bourbon Pursuit. So, yeah, I think that we have that that initial easy hurdle of getting onboarded through them because we have an audience and they feel more confident of being able to go and sell it in the market because of just we we have we have the ability to direct people there. And instead, it's not having to sit there and try to build a group. And that's one thing people are always like, oh, distributors, we love to build brands. 
they they say that they don't actually mean it, right? They want established brands that will help and just continually move product yeah. because what they want to do is they want to make reorders and reorders and reorders because more money we make, the way more money they make. And so that is what their goal is, is help. They want to say they build brands, but they want an established brand that will continue to just drive sales. All right, guys, thanks again for another episode here on Behind the Pursuit. A reminder, if you all have podcast questions for the guys or potential topics that you all want us to dig into on future episodes, podcast at PursuitSpirits.com. Let us know. Interact with us on this particular topic. Let us know what you all think about brands and their portfolio. You all in more like the Michter's camp where they're just doing several things. They're dictating what it is and it's all good. Or do you like to see kind of a steady rotation? Let us know what you like to see or what you find typical from the brands that you will enjoy. Thanks again, as always, for tuning in to another episode. And until next time, we'll see you all later. Later.